Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And today we're Dangerously Likely to talk about the current state of Biden's climate agenda. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. A draft opinion from February leaked to Politico this week seemingly shows that the Supreme Court is looking to strike down the landmark ruling of Roe v. Wade that provides federal constitutional protection for abortion rights. The opinion, labeled as the opinion of the court, is written by Justice Samuel Alito, where he claims that, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start and that it must be, quote, overruled. The consequences of striking down Roe v. Wade are vast. First, doing this would eliminate the federal protection of abortion, triggering most red states to completely ban abortion outright almost instantly. Idaho is one of those states. Mm -hmm. Another consequence is the danger to women. Women who are in a situation that requires an abortion will not stop accessing abortions, but banning them outright in half of the country makes it far more dangerous to access one. However, it is important to note that this is a draft opinion from February, which makes this subject to change, and it certainly does not help that the initial outrage in the media is mainly focused on the leak itself and not the horrific opinion that Alito gave. Terrell, we both had a lengthy conversation about this as it was leaked. And Don't I wanted, we always? <laughs> and I wanted to get your quick thoughts on this. Well, I also think something important to realize when it comes to Roe v. Wade is that the decision was ultimately about privacy. It was a privacy of patients to not have to disclose their medical procedures, which inevitably led to an argument that by not disclosing um, you were having an abortion or partaking in those procedures, um, the state could not intervene. And I do think that's a very important and key part to this, that based on Alito's opinion as drafted, um, his statement that Roe and Casey were egregious, if you will, um, is also attacking the fact that Americans deserve privacy. That aside, I do think something very important here is that it is a draft. This is very routine for the Supreme Court to do in in almost all landmark decisions, especially under Roberts Court. A draft opinion will be made for both sides. And in the secret closed-door conference that a lot of people despise and dislike, um, the justices will then argue on the merits of that and the opinion will change. I personally think that hearing that Alito wrote it um, signals that it's not as, what am I trying to say, engraved in stone as people feel it is. But I do think people need to take a breath, understand that this is a routine thing. And while it is scary and, and terrifying that our country might be moving backwards far rapid, more rapidly than we thought it would. Um, this is how the Supreme Court functions. And the fact that this was leaked was intended to spark outrage and to get a certain response, which we are seeing everywhere. That's not an opinion and not a thing that people should feel bad about, but they do need to not feel that we're in this Twitter universe, that we have to react to everything the minute we see it. It was leaked as though it was a majority opinion yes, and that the Supreme Court has already kind of decided it's going to strike this down. Of course, the opinion might change, but do you think that that part is clear or do you think that could change too? That can 100% change. The, the opinion was written by Justice Alito, 
<laughs> There's no clear yeah. signs of which justices were on board. This was just an opinion of his view of why Roe or why the Mississippi case is reason enough to overturn Roe and Casey. Another important part, Casey um, is the the opinion that came out of the Supreme Court in the 90s that focused more in on abortion rights for um, women. But what's very critical here is this is an opinion from Justice Alito, not an opinion from the Supreme Court, not an opinion from a majority of justices from the Supreme Court, but from one specific justice who, in his opinion, the Mississippi case justifies the overturning of what he called an egregious overstep by the court. I kind of forgot the language, so I apologize. But an egregious overstep of the court through Roe. And those are very important words that I, I'm upset were not used. I'm frustrated, have not been communicated, and has allowed for kind of this discourse where I think people are acting appropriately, but we're seeing the complete opposite, right? We're seeing individuals angry at the Democratic Party as if the Republican Party is not the reason our democracy is falling apart right now acting as if Mitch McConnell did not hold a Supreme Court justice seat for over 300 days in an insurance to make sure that he could have a court that leaned his way. We're, we're pretending like um, former President Trump did not run on a roster of justices that were, quote unquote, pro-life, inherently making the Supreme Court political. These are the pieces that I think are being lost in this narrative because people are upset, because people haven't taken time to process and understand that this, again, is a routine thing that the Supreme Court does. This is an opinion from Alito, not from the whole court. But additionally, it's a conflation that we as a country have moved, have always moved. I'm a part of this problem too, even though I despise the Supreme Court. We feel that their opinions are law, which they are not. Only once in history has the Supreme Court made a technical decision that Congress then followed up and supported, and that was voting. That was voting rights specifically for disenfranchised African Americans. However, it is important that people have a pause, that the conservative party is challenging that predisposed notion that we've had in this country for hundreds of years, that when the Supreme Court makes their decision on constitutionality, that becomes the new law. It is important that we recognize that Texas, Idaho, Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, I can keep going, are challenging that predisposed notion and are putting a lot of pieces at risk. Same-sex marriage, segregated schools are not codified in law. Tomorrow, if it became an issue of some sort that the real CRT is... um, the fact that our schools are mixed. Idaho could pass a law tomorrow and challenge the fundamental principles of Brown v. Board of Education. And if um, Justice Alito's opinion were to carry, they now have a premise to say like, yes, because Congress has not passed a law, that is how we should move forward. And those are the key pieces that I do think we need to hone in on more appropriately. Yeah, it is notable that 
Um, even if Roe v. Wade was struck down, that doesn't make it illegal. And that um, Alito writing the opinion that was leaked is probably on the very much extreme end of what the actual majority of the court opinion might be at the end of the day, even if it does strike it down. I wonder, kind of just a thought I had when you were talking about Democrats and placing the blame on them versus Republicans and whatnot. I wonder if people just feel a little bit helpless because Democrats are the ones that would stop this, or if they could, they probably would. Um, And so I wonder if it's more of like a helpless notion of like, I'm mad at Democrats because they can't do it, kind of knowing that they can't do it. Show up. We have midterm elections (laughs) in November. And again, I'm going to echo a point that I made on our last pod, right? I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and are frustrated that I am not showing um, the same level of empathy. I will not say I'm not showing empathy, but I will argue that I'm not showing the same level. The power is truly in each of your individual hands to change and rectify and shape the country that you want to see. I'm not going to make any assumption on who's listening to this pod, but I can say that a lot of people went into an election in 2016 and thought that their candidate was just going to inevitably get it and were proven wrong and had to witness what four years of being wrong felt like. And I am petrified that we are on the course of doing the same thing again because the Democrats aren't energizing enough or because they aren't playing by Mitch McConnell's rules. I'm sorry, but that's not the party I'm going to support. I don't want a party that is going to get rid of the filibuster just because it makes it easier to pass what I do think and inevitably feel is right. You know why? Because once that little bit has been taken away, I've already seen that you all, speaking very generally here, will not always show up for my best interest. And if my voice still gets outvoted and Mitch McConnell ends up in the the majority um, leader again, he now has a a Senate without a filibuster. The Affordable Care Act is gutted. He doesn't even need his whole party at that point. He can have a 52-48 majority in the Senate and still allow for, let's say, Collins and Murkowski, sorry, Mitt Romney, I don't think you're going to lose, but (laughs) we're just using you as an example here. He could let them go off and still be able to gut these core fundamental things that we need. And it's that short-term thinking that is the problem. Be as frustrated as you want with where we are today, but use that power smartly. Stop acting as though both parties are the same right now. Stop stop acting as if... um, Both are extreme and really, truly take a step back and say, what do you have the power to do? And right now you have the power to ensure that even though I don't like him, Chuck Schumer is the majority leader of the Senate for another four years. Those are the things that matter. Those are the pieces and principles that we need to be thoughtful of. People are... I'm going on a tangent, so I do apologize to our listeners, but I'm just so frustrated with this. People are championing Senator Warren currently for her words outside of the Supreme Court earlier today. However, no one is talking about the true passion that Chuck Schumer shared on the Senate floor this morning during his opening statement. 
They are the same, but people are more willing to play into performative actions and to make arguments that more Democrats need to be like Elizabeth Warren. I know for a fact that there are 49, because Manchin's on the fence, there are 49 senators in that body right now who are actively looking at all their options, who are listening to Chuck Schumer on how they can move forward, who are coordinating with the White House on how to do these things. That is how politics works. We need to stop going for the short end of the stick or trying to match what Mitch McConnell did, and we need to own that. And last point, we also need to be confident in our convictions. We can impeach justices, and based on everything I'm hearing from Collins and Murkowski, they both feel that Justice Kavanaugh lied to them and misled the Senate in order to get his job. That is an impeachable offense. I think it's worth noting, too, that the House has passed legislation that would codify Roe v. Wade into law, but the Senate will not be able to pass it unless they have 60 votes. And that just goes to show the kind of... It goes to show what we need to do as a Democratic Party in this midterm cycle if we want to see that codified into law. Whether or not it gets struck down, this really should be codified. So we got to show up. And I will note before we move on to the international fold. Sorry to interrupt you, Terrell. You didn't. <laughs> I was about to. I saw your face. Um, like, obviously, this is uh, an issue that I'm assuming we will talk a lot as in the next couple months when we actually get a decision. Um, hopefully, what we saw leak isn't really what we're going to actually see. And it most likely will not be. But I mean, in terms of the decision. Um, hopefully Roe does stay uh, in place for now. But it's greatly frustrating and disheartening, but we will be here to talk about it in the future. Terrell? Let's check out the international fold. <laughs> Russian President Vladimir Putin heightened the likelihood of an international conflict on Tuesday, threatening the Western nations with um, terminating exports and deals made with the United States and its allies. According to reports, this decree allows Moscow a new chess piece um, in stowing chaos across markets as the state could pull all exports at any moment, taking confidence in the stock exchange. This comes as the European Union faces new challenges within its own bloc as Slovakia and Hungary seek exemptions from any further oil embargoes with Russia. And a new line of rhetoric is also coming out of the Kremlin, um, calling on the Western world to stop the aristocracy of Ukraine. We at Dangerous Likely will continue to update you, our listeners, as these horrendous acts continue, especially as Pope Francis increases his calls to meet with Vladimir Putin amid the conflict. Jumping around the world... The United States Department of State has officially listed WNBA star Brittany Griner as wrongfully detained, opening the door for more aggressive negotiations for her release. And in Sri Lanka, um, the opposition party has issued a vote of no confidence to oust their current prime minister and his cabinet amidst the worst economic recession in generations. And we'll be right back.
And we're back with Dangerously Likely. All right, everyone. It's about time we've had another main climate story to discuss with y'all. And this one is about current climate news and the politics of potentially saving some of Biden's climate agenda first addressed in his Build Back Better plan. So let's start with some bad news first, just to get that out of the way. <laughs> There's always bad news with climate. <laughs> As we've mentioned before, methane gas is one of the worst greenhouse gases that pollute the atmosphere. In fact, if you take an equal amount of methane gas and compare it to car- compare it to carbon dioxide, the methane will trap 84 times more heat than the carbon dioxide will. Natural gas prices are currently soaring due to the energy needs of the world, but most companies and even the EPA do not fully know or understand the amount of methane that leaks from pipelines and facilities. The Environmental Defense Fund, which is a nonprofit organization, believes that the U.S. undercounts the amount of methane leakage by 50%, which is a massive amount of methane when applied to every piece of infrastructure that touches the gas in America. According to the EPA, that equates to over 1.4% of all natural gas produced in the U.S. being leaked into the atmosphere. Moving on, an analysis from Bloomberg Green claims that Biden's climate ambitions are all but dead. This comes after a campaign promised to cut U.S. emissions by half by 2030 is virtually out of reach, experts say. At least it won't happen without some major legislative breakthrough, which is not looking great at the moment, but more on that later. (laughs) And finally, to end our wave of bad news, wind power is is failing in the market, which is a bad thing to fueling a renewable energy future. Why is it failing? Because raw materials and logistics costs are soaring, and even wind power heavyweight players can't keep up with the costs. One of the biggest issues of today is making renewable energy a viable market. And it has worked really well for like some parts of that, like solar. But wind power companies are struggling to make a profit, and that could ultimately slow down a vital source of renewable energy in the years to come. So, Terrell, before we move on to some good news, what do you make of some of these news stories? (laughs) I don't know. on the spot. (laughs) It's not even that. It's just... I I genuinely feel an exhaustion towards politics, towards the idea of what our future is going to look like. And hearing this news is just a reaffirming of that. Like my brain stopped functioning, not because it lacked an answer, but because it, it is exhausting. Um, as we just have a whole, had a whole conversation around abortion and a uh, current justice is making an argument that, well, People can't take care of their kids. They can just put it up for adoption. Will we have a world that we can put these children up for adoption in when we are already at the precipice of a, a catastrophic end when it comes to climate? So yeah. I, I want to yeah. highlight something positive or be a little bit more happy-go-lucky, but I struggle here because there is this deep, deep exhaustion that I have hearing this news and hearing everything. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. And, of course, we don't want to always be the bearer of bad news, <laughs> um, like it feels like much of the media is these days. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, the methane thing is very interesting to me. Methane has, like, recently been found to be, like, actually one of the worst greenhouse gases. And if we're just able to stop some of these leaks, which there are actually energy companies that are trying to do that, um, and even the EPA is trying to do it to an extent, but that whole system probably needs to be a little bit reformed because businesses have to report it themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they report their emissions and the EPA says, okay, you're good to go. But then when they actually do, like, spend the money to do some of these methane leak testing, they're like, holy crap, we're 20% over what the EPA said is okay. And we're not alone in that. 
Like this is not out of the normal. Mm-hmm. Um, if we could get methane out of the air, like relatively soon, like that helps with their climate goals of not going over one and a half degrees, like immensely. And two, I, I think worth adding again, leading on our above the fold stories. It, we can't ignore the fact that globally we're looking at one of the worst conflicts since world war two mm-hmm. that has the potential to spew out and, and just wreak havoc on so many lives and so many spaces, but it is pushing forward a more energy independent conversation that I don't inherently know would have happened um, without the conflict. And I think for me hearing that piece on Biden's um, climate agenda being all but doomed, I feel like that's a little premature. I do think that you're seeing the European Union shift away from oil and gas out of Russia. You're seeing uh, our country, the U.S., step into that space and be more thoughtful and cognizant of how do we negotiate or have conversations around what energy looks like in the modern world. And two, a lot of Biden's agenda when it came to these pieces were more philosophical, in my personal opinion, of being cognizant of equity, being cognizant of impacts, doing your research and having the information available for um, making those broader shifts. And I do think those are big wins that this country has never had. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. I I do think that the Biden climate agenda um, piece of this, uh, a lot of experts are saying, well, and this is probably what I do agree with. A lot of experts are saying, well, you promised to, to have U.S. emissions by 2030 at this moment in time. Uh, that's dead. Mm-hmm. And that's dead because we haven't had the climate legislation like we hope to get in the Build Back Better plan. And we might still get something, but I don't know if it'll be enough for that, even if it does cut a significant portion of it. Yeah. Um, in terms of the agenda itself, though, I think that I don't think it's dead quite yet. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But, you know, let's have a little bit of good news. <laughs> I may have mentioned uh, that Biden's plan is all but dead, um, according to experts, but the administration has still made a climate a focus of their agenda. The administration announced that it will provide over $3 billion in grants for producing key battery metals and more. Batteries are used for electric vehicles, and overall energy storage and advancing battery technology will be part of the key to a renewable energy future. And lastly, California's goal to become powered by 100% clean energy by 2045 hit a big milestone recently when the state's main grid ran on 99.87% renewable energy for two minutes on Saturday. This just goes to show that renewables can power entire states and that hitting these goals are possible. And on a housekeeping note, we feel it is vital to keep you all informed. That's why we post the links to the information and stories we get in our episode description. Uh, Feel free to check them out. Terrell, I only had a couple uh, uh, good news around climate for this uh, episode, and they're all recent, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, any thoughts about those? It's really encouraging to hear out of California that a milestone has been made um, and just demonstrate. Granted, California is a massive city with a lot of people, but just demonstrate. City. I meant state. <laughs> Same thing. They're basically one big city, right? No, North and South. Um <laughs> But it's very encouraging to hear that a state has the the capability and ability to move in that direction. And if the narrative could shift 
it just demonstrates that most every state has that potential. Um, I mean, you've heard it from me a lot, both on and off air. I think climate is that one core issue that every American, no matter what state they live in, can understand and buy into and recognize and see. Uh, In Idaho, we're seeing one of the wettest years we've ever had, um, while also coming off of one of the driest years we've ever had a year ago. Um, The crazy wildfires, all these pieces, we can see exactly what's happening and being able to not always just lean on your, your country and say, well, the U.S. isn't meeting levels or aren't making their marks, but to say California as a state, as a part of the union is able to get there. Um, it's just a huge indicator to me. Yeah. I, I thought the California story, like specifically, it was like, it, it was really encouraging because, you know, you have this huge state and granted they have aggressively um, tried to cut their emissions and whatnot mm-hmm. and invest in clean energy and whatnot. And seeing them, even though it was only for two minutes, like, we didn't really start talking about climate until like maybe a decade ago, maybe probably less. Yeah, more. I mean, more, but like like in a urgent, we need to do something kind of way. Climate change really came up under Gore in two thousand, so that's two that's and a half point. decades. The fact that that California has been able to do this and it doesn't feel like a lot of time is it's pretty encouraging. And you're right; it it gives this idea that wow, states can do this. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's kind of interesting, like Idaho, whether or not you like hydropower, is mostly powered by hydropower. Mm-hmm. And that's actually very interesting um, because it's definitely not coal, and that's good to an extent. Um, also, with the battery stuff from Biden, uh, battery technology right now is a lot of people feel like it's behind where it should be. And having renewable energies, like the biggest thing about like solar energy, for instance, is that it doesn't work at night. Mm-hmm. If we had batteries, big enough batteries to store enough energy to like power some households at night, um, like that would be a really big deal. But, uh, and there's a lot of companies looking to do that, but this $3 billion in grants, it's all about, it's all about the incentive structure of climate change and changing the incentives of, of how to get there throughout the world in that system. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely will go a long way in that part of, of investing in climate change. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah. And it's a part of the bigger picture too, right? Um, you can't, you can't ignore the fact that this investment in battery technology isn't directly correlated to the bipartisan infrastructure bill that purposefully adds funding to have more charging stations across the country. Um, so this is kind of my piece earlier of why I think it's premature to make any certain ratings on um, Biden's climate agenda, except for the point that you just justifiably brought up, um, is you can see if you're a policy wonk like we are, you can see the connections between an action that occurred in um, the early parts of this administration to now of now that we're building the system, the foundation we can start investing into all these technologies to ensure that we as a country are moving in the right direction. So I, I do harp on and appreciate the ability for um, this broader system to start being built. Yeah. And one thing that like this battery like investment will lead to, I think, is just greater electrification of 
the resources that we use. And what I mean by that is like electric cars. That's probably the best example of today. Like those run off of like fuel, like gas mm-hmm. and whatnot. Like, like what people forget is like your car, you will probably spend over $25,000 in, I don't remember exactly where that stat came from. So I apologize on the source there, but it, you'll spend about $25,000 of gas on a car um, in its lifetime. No, in a decade, in a decade. And when you have an electric car, like even if that energy is coming from like a coal plant, for instance, it makes it easier to switch to renewables because renewable energy can provide that electricity instead. But right now we don't have that. So, and a lot of people, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't know about electric cars. Like it doesn't really seem like they make a difference. Well, they don't have exhaust. And like I said, they have to use this extra fuel. Electric cars, even if it's coming from a bad fuel source, don't have to do that. And when we do finally switch those sources, those charging stations to solar energy or wind energy or whatnot, um, that'll be a big deal for the electrification of those fleets and of what we drive and whatnot. And batteries play a role in that of storing that kind of energy um, to be available for use in the future. But let's talk about where the, uh, the Biden climate agenda is currently at. When Build Back Better died several months ago, it seemed like quite a discouraging defeat. Joe Manchin, the senator from or not Wisconsin, uh, West Virginia, uh, rejected the reconciliation bill, which included $500 billion in climate spending. Now it's back on the table, however, with mid- with midterms coming soon. There's not much time to pass a big bill, and Manchin is back at trying to reach compromise with Republicans across the aisle, even though the party's leaders have signaled that they will try to stop Democrats from passing anything else before the midterms. Manchin, as usual, is very w- much worried about uh, inflation and wants to get the deficit down to help with the inflation. We've talked a lot about why these spending bills don't really add to inflation. And I mean, at least for me, it's not a very legitimate talking point, but nope. nevertheless, it still is for Manchin. <laughs> uh, he wants to spend down the deficit and passing, you know, that $1.7 trillion Build Back Better plan uh, last, was it December or January is, uh, of course, that's going to add to the inflation, even though it's paid for over the next decade. Yep. Terrell. Prediction and forecasting is always wrong, but do you think we might have a climate bill before the midterms? Probably. I think we will. <laughs> um, probably the <laughs> quickest answer I've ever given on the pod. Yeah, well, um, you're feeling confident. There's already a coalition there, and there's a trust in that coalition that I don't care what McConnell says, he's not going to be able to reconcile it. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope it's still there. Murkowski and Manchin understand each other. They come from similar walks of life, and they both are impacted on different sides of the energy argument, um, where Manchin will continue arguing for coal and why we need to protect uh, miners. Murkowski is coming from a space of federally owned land, clean water, uh, wildlife pres- preservation while also understanding the importance of enterprise and supporting businesses. So there's such a unique and nuanced conversation that those two are able to have in this space that is vastly different than uh, a Californian or a New Yorker having the same conversation with a Montanan. Montanian. Uh, so I think that them working together, them being able to 
demonstrate they have partners outside of D.C. on this issue. And essentially, Manchin, knowing that as long as it says climate change, the Democrats are probably going to support it as long as it doesn't do more harm than good. (laughs) I feel pretty confident that if he can continue to cultivate his relationship with Murkowski, Murkowski can utilize some of her relationships um, in Arizona, probably Montana, maybe in North Dakota, um, you'll see a bill that is very similar to the bipartisan infrastructure bill that can carry some incremental change, which I'm sure a lot of people won't be happy hearing, but need it change. Um, and uh, I think we've seen that McConnell does not have a grasp over his caucus now that they're not in charge. So I don't fear that people won't break away and say, no, this is good for the people in my state and I'm up for re-election this year. Specifically, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. He will vote no, but he will use it as, well, look at all the money that we're bringing in for clean water for the Great Lakes. We did that. Like, it's those things that I can see passing pretty easily. Or he'll just say, yeah, I voted for it when he didn't. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) I read this opinion piece um, on uh, Bloomberg that, that was basically like, the Biden administration, if it cares about its climate agenda should throw its support behind Manchin trying to get it done. No, they should not. Yeah. <laughs> look, the look, Biden administration should do exactly what it's doing right now and not say a word. <laughs> Let the Senate and the House do their own thing, and you step in and sign the bill and champion it after it's made it across the, the green light. But by no means does the administration need to be at the forefront of any of the issues that are happening right now because that is how you give mcconnell his win to say well look you're supporting this socialist president and it collapses in front of me even though it's part of his agenda yeah look um i understand the point the that the author of the piece was trying to make (laughs) they were trying to make the point that like if joe manchin is the one roadblock to getting this climate agenda done and this is what he wants to do then I guess support him for it, and I don't know if that's wrong. No, yeah. I you know I don't I I agree with you more, but I don't know if it's wrong to be like okay, well, Manchin, you go do your thing as long as we get something on the table. And another one of the things though is that uh, Republican like compromising here with the small group that Manchin has, it'll probably yield things like money for uh, advanced nuclear energy production mm-hmm. and research, and I. I won't lie, like, some people really don't like the idea of nuclear. And that's actually, I've said this before, nuclear energy and power has been, I think rightfully so, one thing that the American people and maybe the world have just, like, been very uninterested in, especially with the nuclear disasters in the past and how scary (laughs) nuclear weapons are. Not to downplay it, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had Fukushima not that long ago. Absolutely. Like, it makes a lot of sense. But we don't... These days, nuclear power is a bit different, and you can make a lot of nuclear power plants that are way safer, virtually can't melt down if something goes wrong, or at least it's contained. And then there's a lot of new techniques of how you handle the waste of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm actually very interested in, if that's a compromise that comes out of this, I'm actually very interested in that, because one problem with nuclear energy is that it's way too expensive to build new plants. Mm-hmm. And it also uses a lot of water. Yeah, it uses a ton of water to cool and whatnot. Um, but even there's even processes that are that are more efficient these days for that even. So 
that's that's an interesting compromise point um, from Republicans that I actually wouldn't mind uh, diving into a little bit more if we get details on that. So what I'm hearing is you also think there's a possibility that we might get a climate change bill before the midterm. You know, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Uh, it seemed to me that even though Manchin struck down the $1.7 trillion the other day, it seemed that all indicators included that that $500 billion climate change provision that had a lot of stuff in it wasn't going away almost no matter what, even if Manchin didn't like most of or the price tag. And so, you know, when there was spending in the Obama administration, I think it was, I think it was like $50 billion for Mm -hmm. climate change stuff, which is obviously this is 10 times that, which is needed for the moment, probably more to be honest. Um, but that $50 billion went a long way. And I don't have exactly all the stats of that based like on the top of my head, but I know that like that actually like the place that we are in at right now in the U S like we wouldn't be here with that, that initial investment. And so injecting that much more into it, um, I think while I don't know, I don't know where that gets us in terms of the, the climate goals that we have to reach as a species. Um, it's certainly a really good step in the right direction. And, uh, and this is what I mean by Biden's climate agenda from earlier. I don't, I don't think it's completely dead yet, even if that one promises. Um, but this would go, this would be a huge investment, um, a huge investment into climate change and fighting it and and protecting people and whatnot. And you know what, if a little bit of nuclear is part of that, uh, I think I think everything, we'll need to do everything we can. And that includes nuclear at some point. Um, and it includes not going off of oil right away. Like those big companies that make up most of the pollution in the world. Yeah, we're going to have to do something about that. But the reality is, is they're probably part of the answer to the solution, even if they're the problem right now. So I'm, I'm hopeful and excited to see what comes out of all this. And we'll be right back. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously likely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes and you can rate us. Take us on a tangent, Caleb. My tangent is short and sweet. And uh, I'm just I'm just in a really like happy mood right now. I don't have school anymore. And I graduate on Saturday with my MBA and I'm just very stoked about it and I'm just feeling good and whoop, whoop. yeah, I know despite some of the interesting news that has come out over the past few days, um, I'm just, again, just really stoked to be done with school, but also I feel pretty proud and I'm ready to find a career that I'm interested in. <laughs> That'll be the fun part over the next month or two. What about you, Terrell? Take us on a tangent. Silly goose. You think people still find careers they love? Um, no, that's awesome. I'll just Congra- be a podcaster for life. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> so excited for you. Um, I don't know. My tangent is I'm super, I think I'm also, even though I'm exhausted from everything else, I think in my personal life, I'm super happy and um, thankful for the communities that I built in Boise. Um, super thankful for all those listening. Um, we're actually recording out of a studio at Speak Boise, which is a unique opportunity that I'm Woo-woo. so glad we were able to um, make work and really 
just get to give you guys all these different opportunities to see how we've grown as a pod. And looking back at this pod, looking at all the things we've done, um, I'm just really happy about it. So that's my tangent. Are you uh, grateful for the Golden State Warriors? Of course, but <laughs> I'm not watching that game right now, and I very much believe in superstition and don't want to jinx them. So as I knock on wood real quick, um, go Warriors. <laughs> Well, that's our show. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.